Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. According to the findings of a 2014 Pew Research Center survey, black Americans are significantly more likely to express a belief in God and identify as Christian than are white Americans. Specifically, while 61% of white Americans surveyed expressed a belief in God they would characterize as absolutely certain, 83% of black Americans expressed the same. When you add in those who are fairly certain, that number goes to 81% among whites and 94% among blacks. When we look at the other side of the equation, those who consider themselves agnostic or atheist, the numbers stick out perhaps even more starkly. While about 10% of white Americans put themselves on the hard agnostic to atheist spectrum, that is to say non-believers, only about 2-4% of black Americans do. And while the survey is six years old, an anomaly continues to stand out in Pew's overall data. The general trend line is a reduction in overall religiosity and religious affiliation year to year in the U.S., and with it a growth in those who self-identify as agnostic or atheist. But this doesn't seem to apply to black Americans. For instance, among whites, the number of atheists more than doubled between 2007 and 2014, from 5 to 11 percent. And while the same doubling technically occurred with black Americans, it moved the number from 2 to 4 percent. I knew there was a story in this data. I also knew that many ethnographers argue that the number of white non-believers is probably higher than the data show, that many respondents still fear the social stigma of atheism. Is that what's happening to the black community? Are black atheists out there? And if so, what's their story? I reached out to someone who would know. Mandisa Thomas is the founder of Black Nonbelievers, a nonprofit that connects black Americans and allies who are living free of religion and might otherwise be shunned by family and friends in a caring, friendly, and informative environment. The group now has chapters in 14 major cities across the country. Mandisa Thomas spoke to me from Atlanta, Georgia, where she lives and works. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for the invitation. So I want to kind of start with what led you to make this your full-time gig. Um, you you were working for uh, the Centers for Disease Control? Yes, I was a contractor for the Centers for Disease Control. Yes. Uh-huh. And then you, you started this organization and... Mm-hmm. Over time, it just sort of became your 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 full time gig. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that transition happen? Um, when you started doing this, what did you kind of expect out of it, and how did it emerge into something that became your whole sort of professional life? So, I certainly did not expect that um, the organization would get to a point where it became almost larger than life. Um, 
at the time, I just figured, you know, it is, it would be like a community fellowship, you know, would be bringing folks together in the Atlanta area, more, more black folks who didn't believe in God or who were questioning and just build up that community base. Because I remember what it was like to discover the overall um, community, especially after coming to terms with my atheism, re-coming to terms with that. And so over time, as I continued to see, you know, the gaps in, you know, diversity and inclusion, you know, I just became more dedicated to building up the organization and working with the community. And in that time, as my approach and, and how I do things became more popular and requested, I realized that um, because the job I was working, even though I enjoyed it and it was challenging, um, it wasn't going to be my, you know, my, my end all. You know, I always um, thought that I would move on to doing something else. But I realized that in the time that I was engaging the secular community, that um, what we were doing with the organization was was needed. And that was where that was where over the course of the years that I that black nonbelievers was started and I was working that job, that was where, you know, my my time and dedication um needed to that's where I needed to focus because um while I you know I I had to be careful that I wasn't just jumping into this head first and not having a backup plan you know as as the organization continued to develop we continued to receive more support and as it continued to grow I realized that where I was working it really wasn't helping my growth and development I had pretty much outgrew that job. Mm -hmm. And as much as I appreciated the flexibility that I got, it was time for me to, at the the time I left, it was time for me to, um, you know, to, to, to go into activism full time. I was ready by then. Um, Because I realized that I had already dedicated my life to it. (laughs) It was something that was important to me. It still is. And it was important to so many other people. And so taking all of those factors into consideration, the invitations that I was getting to speak and um, how it was basically cutting into my time at the job, I just said, you know what, it's time to give it up. Um, I had already served my purpose there. (laughs) You know, I'd already done the job that I needed to do. I had outlasted the previous um, managers in my position. So I had nothing more to prove there. Right. So, okay, let's let's back up then a little bit in your in your life story. Um, you grew up in New York City in yes. uh, Jamaica, Queens. Um, mm-hmm. You said that you didn't necessarily grow up with a strong religious foundation, um, but that your grandmother was very religious and that as a uh, black American woman, sort of Christianity and that culture was just sort of ingrained, just kind of there, um, which is a, a sentiment that reminds me of what a lot of I, I hear from like white Catholics a lot of the time, right? That like it's it's even if you don't necessarily 
personally dive headlong into it, it's it's there. It's kind of part of your DNA. Um, what was in your growing up? What was religion to you? What was Christianity to you? As you know, someone who didn't necessarily practice it, but you've talked about exploring religions. Um, tell me a little bit about how you were raised. Yes. So um, in my, in my um, immediate household, um, I, was, I was raised with the um, Black nationalist or Black conscious uh, mindset which some would, would say woke now. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the term, the popular term. So, and, and um, you know, I'm not sure if you heard this before, but I'm a child of the 70s. And if you're, if you're old enough to remember that, it was, you know, very radical, very revolutionary. And a lot of Black families were identifying with Black, black, black power and, you know, more Afrocentricity. Mm-hmm. And so I was born in that time period. And um, now my paternal grandmother is extremely religious, but my maternal grandmother was not. And that, who, that is who had a very profound influence and impact on my early childhood life. She was very, very family oriented. I come from a big family. I mean, I have three, I have two brothers, but I have a number of cousins, a number of aunts and uncles on both sides of my family. But on my mother's side, um, you know, she was, she was very, very festive. We always had Thanksgiving at, at her place, at my grandparents' place. And uh, she was always, um, and it was always good food there. She was from New Orleans and she always celebrated holidays. And I quickly noticed that there was never any prayer over the meals at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, we would get there, we would eat, we would have a good time, and, you know, we would leave. And Easter was always about the Easter bunny. You know, Valentine's Day was about, you know, the chocolates and the decorations. And, um, you know, of course, that was more fun to me. Now, my exposure to Christianity in the church, of course, being in a neighborhood where there are a number of storefront churches. Um, I also had a voice teacher. I started singing at the age of four uh, or professionally trained. And I would, um, I would sing as a soloist with my voice instructor in various churches around um, Queens in, in New York. And um, the churches and the churches where I went to, uh, it always just seemed everything about, you know, um, Jesus and, you know, the master and the, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit was always just very confusing to me. And it also seemed to be very confining. So it wasn't that I had an interest in it. It actually kind of creeped me out. Yeah. <laughs> Because, um, you know, on the one hand, you're hearing that this God is a loving God. The next thing you're hearing is that he's a jealous God. Then you're seeing the images of the crucifixion and such. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness, this shit is crazy. (laughs) And um, so I was just I was kind of befuddled by it. Um. I and I also learned early on about how Christianity was ultimately um, forced on um, my my African ancestors in this country. Yeah. And that was another thing that confused me, too, because I noticed that there were an extremely high number of Christians within the black community, but 
that they and that they accepted a religion that was basically forced on them. And so that never sat right with me either. And I consider myself fortunate in that regard because it's almost like a rude, it's like a rude awakening and, and having to have this at such an early age was just like, wow, you know, it was, it was, it was mind blowing. And it always gave me something to think about, especially as I was singing these churches when I was younger. But I did read a lot of um, mythology from 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 different cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my mother always had my brothers and I in a library and in different programs. And so I read about, you know, I, I read Greek mythology. I read, um, you know, actually some African mythology. And so I would I would compare and contrast that to um, you know the, the Christian gods and and some of the the um, Muslim doctrine that I would hear as well. And I thought, wow, you know the, these gods are you know you know it's kind of crazy you know compared to the other ones. <laughs> and so I think from a comparative religion standpoint, the, that was very interesting because those other cultural tales of the gods were actually very human-like and they were more interesting. But the Christian God just always seemed so polarizing. And I could understand how people could live in fear of that. And that was absolutely of no interest to me at all to want to really follow mm-hmm. because it was just so, it was so paradoxical, the dualities of it just never sat well with me. I imagine that you get quite a bit of pushback. I will talk more about this. <laughs> I imagine you get pushback from a lot of different angles. Um, but I imagine one of the things that you'd be pushed back on, I know you talk about the link between Christianity and white supremacy, um, the, the fact that Christianity was effectively forced onto the black population, um, especially in America. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you look at some, you, you look at um, liberation theology and you look at uh, some of the great black civil rights leaders, um, you know, the late John Lewis and, and Martin Luther King and so on and so on. And even, even uh, you know, Malcolm X using uh, religion as, as, as part of his mm-hmm. uh, platform. Um, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth. It, it, that all of these people um, embraced Christianity and um, wove it into their own framework, um, as opposed to just accepting the uh, sort of white narrative handed down to them and and becoming part of a white church. They formed their own churches. They formed their own theology. They formed their own form of this religion. So one of the things that I would imagine um, is, is people would argue with you about is to say like, well, yeah, it's true. But at the same time, you can take this idea uh, and you can make it your own and you can, you can make a black version of it. And so what's the big deal? Um, What would you say to that? What do you say to that? Yes. Yeah, so we, well, I can't speak for everyone in my organization and also for all Black atheists, because there are some who would fervently defend this and some who would fervently challenge that. And I'm somewhere in the middle on that. Because, and and, and let's, uh, you mentioned Malcolm X, who was, you know, who, who um, died um, a Muslim and who actually challenged 
the notion of Christianity. And he also very much pointed out how many Black Christians, even though, and, and this has been, and that had been the case ever since, you know, the period of enslavement that there were, or even after that, you know, that, that Black folks took, you know, the Christianity that was given to them and, and made it their own. But that underneath it, many Black folks were still worshiping white Jesus and a white God. Right. And that the framework, the framework for the colorism in our community, the actual implementation of white supremacy, even as, you know, even when, you know, we don't realize it, ultimately results from, you know, from this Christian doctrine. And the Nation of Islam was was very big on 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 stating that, even though, you know, they're they've had their supremacist issues of their own. So, but we acknowledge the role that uh, the church played during the times that many Black folks needed it for support. Mm-hmm. Um, the buildings and the institutions themselves, um, as well as the leaders who, um, and also Ida B. Wells, who was one of my heroines, who was a who was a Christian. Um, who, who use their faith to help other people, especially during those very, very perilous and tumultuous times. That is something that we hope that all religious people would do. Um, but what we challenge, though, is the foundation. The foundation of suffering, which even in you know, even with some of these leaders who are very liberated, you know, liberation minded, you still have to ultimately serve this God who you, who they, um, you know, who they purport as saying, as being with us through these tough times, but yet seems to have been absent when we were placed in these times in the first place. Right. So there's there, um, we, you know, we challenge people to be honest you know, about why they still believe what they believe, where it comes from, and even in making it your own, you still have to be honest about the detrimental things that come along with it and how so many people are still willing to ignore not just the the, the very dangerous parts of the doctrine, but also how we got here. And that's something that as a community, we still need to come to terms with. It isn't just that you know, the white collective has imposed this on us and that somehow we're, we're liberating ourselves from that part of it. Mm-hmm. It's all a part of it. It's been ingrained in the community for so long that even getting to, but if, in that, in that if we're going to get to the roots of the problem, then it may shake the foundation of what you believe and may cause you to come to terms with some very uncomfortable truths that what you still believe is ultimately still responsible for your subjugation and this idea that we still must suffer and serve on behalf of this God that hasn't been proven to exist. And these are the types of conversations that we need to have in our communities because we aren't homogenous. There have always been Black folks who have challenged and critiqued, especially the church and, and Christianity. 
And so to just take it blindly as if, well, you know, the church did so much good and, and so on and so forth is to ultimately be dismissive of the very, very dangerous um, and, and tragic you know, events that have taken place within the Black community and the, the church's and religion's role and responsibility in that. Right. Yeah, I guess the, the challenge then is, is that religion, uh, Christianity, is a very useful organizing tool. Um, I talk to my students about this quite a bit, that one of the advantages of religion as a source of social activism is that um, it allows you to kind of do things um, more easily, perhaps, or convince other people to do things that may not be in their immediate self-interest. Uh, it, it, the, the sort of devotion to a abstract idea uh, can be a very powerful way of moving people uh, towards social activism. Maybe it's not the, maybe, you know, maybe pleasing a god or whatever is not the best measure or the, or, or the best um, impulse in terms of, you know, liberating people. But if it works, it works, right? And so the question then becomes, without that organizing principle, um, isn't the work of social activism and social justice more difficult? I don't think so. I would actually um, challenge, um, I would actually contest that because there were a number of non-religious people that were involved in the civil rights and human rights movements. There have always been, as a matter of fact, many of our most iconic and historic accomplishments that have taken place within the Black community were by either full non-believers or those who have critiqued or challenged the church. And one example is Black History Month, which started as Negro History Week by the late Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who also wrote a book about the history of the Negro church and uh, who was an open critic of the church. And so I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the church in particular has honestly hijacked the legacy of justice movements. You know, just because it was more prevalent and more, you know, and, and, and more present in our communities doesn't mean it has the, the right to, you know, to, to hijack that legacy. And, and actually, um, there's, you know, there's been documentation that uh, Dr. King, for example, uh, met, with, met with a lot of resistance from many church leaders, because they were scared of getting involved, understandably, because it was dangerous. So it's it's interesting that after his death, that the Black church is claiming so much over the civil rights movement as the beacon of, of organizing and strategizing. Yeah. I mean, they were buildings. And we can also argue that it wasn't always safe, considering the young girls who were who were killed um, when the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed in Birmingham. So, um, you know, it was still very dangerous uh, regardless of who was organizing. But I really think it took those leaders who rested on their humanistic principles, you know, to get things done. Yeah. 
and this is actually very telling even now with the collective power that um, that the church has, and they still stand down on certain issues. Certainly, they could be at the forefront of it because if anyone is compelled to do good because you know, and 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 they feel like their their belief in God is you know is is guiding them, that's fine. The problem comes in when they think it's supposed to be that way for everyone else, right? <laughs> and that. Uh, somehow those of us who don't believe in God either don't exist or we don't have the capacity to to form and organize, and, and which isn't true. Because, you know, uh, our ability to do that um, far supersedes the church. One of the things that I, I, it seems to me, right, in sort of my own reading of history is that the real struggle is convincing white people, right, to be blunt, um, and that Christianity has been, religion has been a, a a way of appealing to white people to, you know, challenge their own privilege and, and build bridges. And white people tend to be very, very sensitive about... Mm-hmm. Yeah, about, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Especially, especially when atheists come at them, you know, um, and, and, and try and take away Christmas or whatever it is, you know, the, the new narrative is. <laughs> um, right. And I, I just, it feels to me that... The, the that trying to do that from a humanistic and atheistic platform just because of the way that I know white people is making it more difficult. Um, have you experienced that? Not not in, internally organizing, but externally reaching out to allies and saying, "By the way, um, you know, we, we don't we don't share your Judeo Christian values or you know whatever it is that you, that you call them." <laughs> well. I would say that um, we've made some inroads over the years. Um, it's been interesting because, yes, there is a narrative that it's only Black folks that heavily subscribe to Christianity and hold on to the church. Mm-hmm. And that's, that isn't true at yeah, all. Right. You know, and we're seeing this in our current climate, how white evangelicals are strongly holding to, you know, to, to, their no, they're under, they're under I attack. Mean, it is absolutely. <laughs> yes. They, yes. They feel like they are under attack. I mean, it is, yes, everyone is coming for them. You know, their, their, you know, their, their rights are uh, being infringed upon, you know, those, 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 those bad godless people are, you know, coming for them. And, you know, it's been, it's been very, very interesting uh, to, to see this dynamic. Um, most of, you know, my experiences have been within the secular community, as well as um, engaging more of the black community. Um, we kind of, we expect this from white evangelicals. You know, we expect this from, you know, those who have have weaponized Christianity and used those white supremacist principles to their advantage. So um, we already know what we're going up against there and we're prepared for it. It's just interesting to see the pushback now because again, to me, to me, it's, it's, it's laughable because, you know, again, this is what, this is what we expect. The concern for me comes in those who say they're on the right side of justice are ultimately still benefiting from that privilege, even though they say they're fighting it. 
It's like, look, you really have to check yourself and make sure you're not becoming the same thing you're fighting against. Because ultimately, whether, you know, it's from a religious base or not, there is still uh, something that it still says a lot, whether you're, um, you know, a believer or not about white supremacy and the structure and institutionalized racism and injustice. It has ultimately, you know, it has ultimately put more white folks at an advantage. And there are some folks who uh, really, really need to check that. And I think, I think that's the hardest part because there will be times where you may not ever be able to convince those who, who hate you. And uh, even going back to Dr. King in his letter from a Birmingham jail, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't to, you know, the white racists who he knew were his enemy. It was to the quote unquote white progressives and liberals who said they were his friend. So, um, you know, those are the ones that that are really going to need to check themselves because we already know what the other what the other side is going to do, what they're doing. And they're actually showing themselves in their hypocrisy. But we want to make sure that we're not doing the same thing. If you're willing to indulge me a little bit in your own story again, I'm, I'm kind of curious about um, your, for lack of a better term, coming out story, um, mm-hmm. if, if there is one. Um, I know, you know, you, you've talked about your your immediate family and um, that kind of environment and, you know, being sort of more, you know, free thinking. Um, we're, we're of a similar age, so I, I, I kind of know the landscape that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I was I was raised a similar way. I was sort of went to church, but nobody ever really imposed it on me, and um, I stopped going when I got bored. Um, but beyond your immediate family, um, within your sort of micro community, did you were you afraid of confessing <laughs> your lack of belief? Um, I, I, I imagine as a black woman the appeal of like, maybe I'll join another marginalized group, you know, like it must have, there must've been a little bit of that um, intimidation, right? I, or I, at least I also imagine the people that you work with probably go through some of this as well. When did you sort of announce yourself to the world as this is what I don't believe and um, I'm, I'm okay with that? Yeah, so um, to answer the first question about, um, you know, being being uh, scared or I certainly was hesitant. And yeah. like like most black atheists and like most black folks who don't subscribe to this binary idea of what it means to have the black experience. Um, absolutely. I have felt that sense of being an outsider. Um, I don't think you can ever escape that. And part of it is due to the institutional factors. Um, but some of it is that in, in response to that, there tends to be this idea that um, our experiences are, are they're supposed to be all somewhat similar. So mm-hmm. there have always been these arguments within our communities about what it means to be Black. And certainly being atheist wasn't one of them. Yeah. So um, I remember the first time I was asked if I was an atheist, I was in high school and I was very, very outspoken. You know, I was very militant. Um, And so I remember a classmate asked me if I was an atheist and I asked what that meant. 
And I was told that I didn't believe in heaven or hell. And at that time, I said, well, that sounds about right. Because I can never reconcile the idea of an afterlife when there was no evidence of one. And I would think about death a lot as a kid and what happens after we die and such. And it scared the, it scared the mess out of me. Mm-hmm. But I still could never just wrap myself in this comforting idea that I would just go to heaven. <laughs> but um, I would say it was later on after... We moved to moved to Georgia, and um, I our family grew. That I became very very um, discontent with how many people would invite us to their churches. They would ask, "What you know? What church did I go to?" And I had other black women asking me and accosting me about, "Well, have I seen you in church?" And I'm just like. Eh. <laughs> So I remember, um, and I, I had always expressed my, you know, my, my, my thoughts about, you know, Christianity and his hypocrisy. And I certainly thought I was spiritual at one time, hmm. but I remember when I, a, a couple of years into when I started working at the CDC and, uh, my boss who is a Christian, um, sort of moderate liberal progressive but still very religious and so there was this there was this climate of of religion in in our workspace which which was a bit uncomfortable and that at the time i was just like okay yeah well i'll just roll with it whatever but after a while um after i started seeing some very hypocritical behaviors i just really really started to push back because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is the typical, you know, this is the typical Christian bullshit that I see y'all do. You know, y'all say one thing, y'all do another. You know, y'all claim to be so nice, but then y'all are ultimately mean as hell and manipulative and sneaky. And of course, that doesn't describe all Christians, but um, it did It did definitely describe many that I saw. So it wasn't until... Um, 2010, when I came across a network of Black atheists online and seeing that, you know, it wasn't this huge, scary thing. It was actually very liberating to find those more people who, who actually questioned, you know, the concepts of God and, and to see more Black folks who were pushing back against it, the same as I did. And so, um, of course, I was uh, I was hesitant, you know, to start expressing myself. And actually, I had a teacher um, who I considered a mentor of mine who, when I started expressing more of my um, dissatisfaction with the church and the God concept, she actually tried to discourage me from doing that. Hmm. But this was a teacher who uh, encouraged the critical thinking process. You know, she was very, very Afrocentric and, and very much an outspoken proponent of the black community, especially when it came to racial injustice. And I thought to myself, well, you are one of the people who, who inspired me. You, you're one of the people who, who encouraged me to speak out and, and, and to be that loud and not, not just loud, but to be assertive in my point of view and to not back down. But when it came to the religion, that's where it was supposed to stop, I guess. <laughs> which only which only pissed me off. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, you know, but this is one of the very, very this is one of the very institutions that's, you know, it's 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 sort of responsible for where we are as a community and not necessarily in a good way. Right. So I think 
that, you know, I, 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 for me, needing to speak out about this and especially live in my truth and live in my identity, it overrode my fear. And then, you know, being from New York, being from the projects, you know, it's like, you know, we, 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 we don't back down. <laughs> so, you know, there's just certain things that, hey, you know, if we're going to have to, if we're going to have to go, you know, head to head on this, then this is what we're going to have to do. And that's the approach I took. And, um, and even though I'd still do like pick and choose my battles, because I would prefer that where I'm able to have a productive and objective conversation with folks as opposed to fighting or, you know, or it being contentious. But, you know, I'm prepared for it if I have to be. But so, but I still do pick and choose my battles. And sometimes I find myself rolling my eyes <laughs> when I come across someone who was so very religious and I'm like, oh gosh. But, you know, it, it you know, it, it kind of comes and goes. I, I'm glad to have found a community that I can fall back on so that I don't feel like I always have to be angry about it. Right. I, so you talk about, Finding a community and, 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 you know, I think that's one of the things that keeps people in religion, right, is a built-in community. Um, and, and part of the work that um, atheists have to do is, is, is provide that. And it, it seems like that's something that you are doing um, based on, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, based on your own experience with being sort of pushed aside um, or, or pushed into a box. Um, but uh, on the other side of that is the basic kind of contradiction that atheism is itself a lack of belief, right? It's not mm-hmm. a belief in something. So, so there's a lot of different voices within this, um, what's sometimes called like the new atheism movement. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've also noticed that within it, there's a, a, a threat of not necessarily white supremacy, but, but mm-hmm. white privilege, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and that there's, when you think of the, the major voices um, of, of atheism recently, people like Sam Harris and um, Bill Maher or, or uh, Christopher Hitchens or, or Dawkins, um, you know, they're all white men. They're all white men of a certain class, right? Shall we say? And 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 there's there is a there is a strain within it of mm, intolerance that that hits a certain point. How do you live within this non-community community of of, of other atheists? Like, how do you build an agenda um, and and develop a set of principles um, around something that is by nature somewhat lacking that structure. Right. So again, I I think that um, we've given too much weight and credibility to religion as being the only um, institution or entity that can build community. Right. Right. Because um, there are many people who don't believe in God or subscribe to, you know, this, this idea of this overarching human type, you know, figure looking over us right. <laughs> and guiding us like puppets, um, you know, being able to, to do such. So I, I do think that, you know, community, how I navigate through it is just seeing, understanding the institutional factors, which many white prominent atheists 
are seem to have to turn a blind eye to. You know, they're so, you know, they're so steeped and and rooted in their academia as well as their disdain for religion, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. But also disregarding certain societal factors even if you know even if some things are based on our bad information we have to acknowledge that um but to disregard your privilege and your your very very linear view of of certain things because many of them are just like well black people should think religion is stupid and they should just let it go but you're not taking into consideration the you know you know the the historical factors and how you know, religion has been ultimately used against the black community and systemically to the point where there have been, there has been access or d- denial to access to the same education that you may have. And of course, that's not saying that's everyone, but, you know, I try to navigate that, you know, by just trying to understand people and also trying to avoid certain people if I can, because we, we're we allowed to do that. You know, we're allowed to do that in the community. We're, we're, we're also allowed to um, have different points of view that, yes, you know, you explain just because I don't believe in your gods doesn't mean that I have, you know, I take no stock in anything. You know, that comes from your very narrow minded point of view about atheism. And it's a very simple definition. And I just expanded a bit to say that, you know, I don't believe in any God, spirit, supernatural beings. I put them in that fiction box. (laughs) They they do not exist. So what does exist is us, you know, and as people coming from different backgrounds, you know, having our different experiences and perspectives, you know, it's okay to take those into consideration, but also, you know, continue to learn and you know, adjust your positions when you're, um, when you're, when, when you're shown to be either incorrect or something needs to change. Sometimes it's hard. I use my skills as a manager and, and have been having been a supervisor and a customer service professional, which I've had to improve over the years, <laughs> which is something that the secular community is still very lacking in. There are a lot of people because they're so used to being those black sheep, if you will, or those outcasts. Um, or having been rooted in such academia that, you know, they have not um, worked on their social skills or social engagement (laughs) tend to come off, you know, very, very, not just awkward, but very brash and very rude. And there's something to be said about tact. Tact doesn't mean you always have to be nice. It doesn't mean that, you know, you are passive, but what it does ultimately say is that you know how to you, you know how to do and say certain things when it's time and also you know when to be quiet when it's time and unfortunately there are a lot of white people in their privilege that that don't want to let that go yeah. you know it's like they're so used to being the authorities on things and people like Sam Harris who I try not to take away his, you know, his credentials and what he has done to inspire many atheists. But when he speaks on certain topics, especially that pertain to institutional racism and injustice in the black community, of which he has not even expertise, but you're, he's obviously not doing any research whatsoever. 
he really needs to stand down on that because ultimately he is discrediting himself as a human being and as someone who lacks compassion and understanding. Um, And Dawkins has had some involvement with trying to reach the Black community, but this hasn't been the case recently. And I do think that um, it's unfortunate that so many people who, you know, you know, who have these academic credentials ultimately have not shown themselves to just be decent human beings. And we're living in a time where, you know, now we're not just always looking at your alphabet soup. We're actually looking at your humanity. And if we're going to dispel and 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 change the narrative you know there's also going to be a lot of uh, internal work that a lot of of the white folks in the secular community are going to have to do because again they're they're used to being um you know they're used to being the authorities especially since so many um there there's still so many uh, white people who are represented within the secular community and part of that is not because there have never been people of color who were non-religious but again we're talking about a privilege that there are many white atheists don't realize that they're still benefiting from and some of that uh is stemmed from religious privilege <laughs> that they may not realize that they're that they're still carrying with them when you reach out to people or when people um come to you, uh, find, find your organization. Um, and when do you hear their stories? Is there, you know, understanding that everybody's story is obviously different, right? Um, yes. Is there, have you noticed any commonalities, any threads, any patterns and themes that, that emerge uh, in, in the people that you talk to when they, when they come to you and say, um, yeah, I'm an atheist and I'm black and what do I do about it, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, what's, is, is there anything that you've noticed as an underlying um, kind of societal pattern that emerges in those stories? Well, for the most part, the, the first first and foremost, it's always that people have always felt that they were the only one right. and that they, they thought they were alone. And there's also a very emotional break, especially that comes with, um, with being Black and atheist because many of our peers and those who surround us are still very religious and because it's been so polarizing, it makes, you know, people very angry. You know, people go through that. The angry phase that many atheists go through is is very valid. Because even if their experiences in church were good, um, there's still a feeling that they were lied to, that, you know, they were misled by some well-meaning parents and, and loved ones. And so it's like this, you know, it's this separation that kind of make people sad. But there's also relief that, you know, that there are others out there who share either the same or similar experiences. And that there are communities and places where they can go to have that space where that they don't have to defend their atheism. They also don't have to defend their blackness. And that is the type of space that I absolutely am dedicated to providing. Because going back to what I said earlier about the Black experience, um, it sometimes can be very linear and very narrow-minded as if, you know, 
you're, let's say, for example, I'm a black woman. That means I had to have been raised in church. That means I had to have, uh, that means I have to like gospel music. And that means that I absolutely must have this way of thinking that, you know, is, is rooted in serving the Lord, which is, uh, which I think a lot of people have to get out of. You know, the black community has never been, uh, you know, has never been monolithic. And as we are seeing now, it, it's not going to be even within even within the um, the black religious community. The dynamics are changing. People are leaving fundamental beliefs behind, even if they still believe in God. It's like, well, you know, the church of the old guard, you know, the old guard uh, beliefs are, you know, people are starting to do away with those. And so ultimately what we see, uh, what, what I come across a lot of is. And a lot of people who are very relieved to see that we're here and um, it's and it breaks those feelings of isolation. They're still working through them, but there's definitely that relief that, oh, my gosh, I am not alone. <laughs> you know, I'm not the only one out there. So the last few months, um, you may have noticed uh, some stuff's been happening. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I wonder, um, last thing I, I want to bring up with you is how that's impacted your organization and your work. Um, have you, is, has the recent uh, move towards um, the post-George post, post Floyd Black Lives Matter movement, um, have, you, have you had more people finding you have have more people been um opening up about their their secularism and their atheism and what is the work that uh have you, have you done any specific work in the last several months um in 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 response to this that you'd like to talk about so um we've been following the uh you know the black lives matter movement as it has um surged uh in 2012 um after you know the trayvon martin um, yeah. incident or tragedy. And so, you know, have with my perspective and my upbringing is being very black conscious, you know, this is something that has never been lost on me. Mm -hmm. And, um, I would say in the past few months, um, I remember receiving a donation just on the fact that George Floyd's funeral service in Minneapolis was super religious that someone felt compelled to donate to us. <laughs> wow. Um, and actually, in the wake of, you know, the, this most recent uprising and the most recent uh, protesting, what we've seen is a lot of people interested in, more interested in hearing our perspectives and hearing them from, you know, the black, you know, the, the black secular perspectives on, you know, Black Lives Matter, what can secular organizations do better, which is something that we've been saying for years because, um, you know, our organ with our organization, I don't ever, um, I don't ever finish a presentation with, with other um, organizations without speaking on, you know, the racial justice factor. I mean, it just cannot be ignored. So we've been seeing more, people actually more interested in doing more of what we've been saying they should do for a while. And uh, we actually saw a surge in support for the organization because many of our members are involved directly with, you know, Black Lives Matter organizations and other racial justice organizations. And so 
what we've um, what we've done is um, lent more support to those initiatives. And something that we've also done, if you know, if you've seen on our website, we recently hosted the Black Family Discussion, and we've tackled, you know, we we've tackled that elephant in the room, and how um, you know Christianity is ultimately the root of white supremacy which is at the root of racial injustice and which is at the root of where we are now. Yeah. And so taking it from that perspective, we've said, Hey, we have got to start addressing this openly. We have to start having these conversations within our communities as to, you know, if people still want to believe and go to church, that's fine. But you must understand that at this point, certainly your churches or your religious institutions are going to need an overhaul. And uh, also trying to under, you know, help them understand that for those who, you know, you're going to have to actually ask the question of, or ask yourselves the question of, can I still believe in this religion that was ultimately responsible for our enslavement and still be free, you know, fully. And, and because, you know, trying to get to the root issues is where, and the foundational issues is is where we stand. We ultimately think that that can, um, you know, bring about, you know, change on a number of levels. Because, you know, the protesting and everything else is good for a while, <laughs> but we don't want this momentum to stop. As, as more people um, get involved in that, that structural and foundational change, then that's that's really going to be where um, things start to turn around, and so this is where this is where we stood, you know, as an organization, and this is what we really started to, um, you know, help people understand. Black lives matter. Black lives have always mattered to us, always, and it's also about continuing to reshape that narrative and getting people to understand that you know there are more folks that are that are coming out even if they even if they still believe they are questioning and that um there are more non-religious voices that need to be brought to the table and and this is um you know we we've seen that increase especially in the past few months um it's it's been it's been very interesting and very good especially as we've had to move to a more virtual space right but it actually has been very good for the support for our organizations. And yes, more people actually finding us and saying, hey, I've, you know, I, I've been questioning this for years. I think that, you know, it's, it's a problem and we need to talk about it. So do you find yourself optimistic in this moment? I do. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic <laughs> because you know we, we've been around long enough to see you know certain things come and go i would hate to see that this becomes a trending you know that that, that this trends because we're seeing sort of a resurgence of like what happened in the civil rights era and um it's a shame that we're actually here again you know, as a as sort of like as a history buff, you know, I realize that history, you know, history tends to repeat itself, but hopefully, people will learn from this moment in time, and previous moments, and and actually move forward this time that we don't have to repeat this yet again. You know that that we can actually dismantle these institutions and not just, and they don't just have to recycle themselves over and over again. So I'm cautiously optimistic at this point. 
You know, we're seeing a lot of people, like we said before, we talked about the white evangelicals who are now resisting and they're, and they're crying and they're saying that their rights are being stomped on, you know, because they have to wear a mask now, you know, (laughs) among other things. (laughs) And, you know, I just, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's a shame that, that people will still not recognize the humanity of others. But until people get out of that mindset that it isn't just all about them and what they think, it threatens to take longer, but I certainly hope it doesn't. Uh, would you like to tell people where to find you on the internet? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you may find us first and foremost on our website at blacknonbelievers.org. Um, it reverts to a .com, but we own the .org and everything else. So I just had to say that. <laughs> We're also all over social media. Uh, we're on Facebook. We have a public page, Black Nonbelievers. We're on Twitter at B Nonbelievers. The B and the N are capitalized. We're also on Instagram at B Nonbelievers Inc. And we're on YouTube at Black Nonbelievers Inc., where we have um, recently posted uh, some of our meetings and some of our events that have taken place. So yes, almost anywhere you their social media, you can find Black Nonbelievers. Well, Mendisa Thomas, uh, keep fighting the good fight, and thanks so much for joining me. It's been an honor. Thank you once again for having me. It was a pleasure. Like most of you, I was indoctrinated with religion Had a time when I was much too young to make decisions Tracked by the hand without permission Lacked the cognitive ability to see the contradictions and the superstitions I know my mother really thought that she was doing right Cause after all, this wasn't a war she was taught to fight Buried under layers of prayers, emotional attachments And every other program and attachment A sense of common unity involvement No actual incentive to question all of the sermons from the pulpit This is how they introduced the idea Firmly rooted in the fear of questioning validity just here it's not innocent it sets a bad precedent internalized credulity for things that lack evidence some people keep this way of thinking for their whole lives the need for critical thinking is never realized i don't want to hear about the books that you have